listeners, and welcome to Recovery Talk, a new podcast from the Peer Recovery Center of Excellence. The Peer Recovery Center of Excellence is funded by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration to enhance peer recovery support services by expanding access to training and technical assistance services across the country. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the Department of Health and Human Services, nor does mention of trade names, commercial practices, or organizations imply endorsement by the U.S. government. I'm your host, Shannon Roberts, and I'm thrilled to announce the launch of our new podcast. Each month, we will be talking with an expert in the field, discussing substance use disorders, resources to assist individuals with an SUD and or their families, and best practices for the delivery of peer recovery support services. Our first episode marks the beginning of a six-month series, where we have the privilege of hearing the story of someone thriving in long-term recovery. Each episode, we will be speaking with a member of the Center of Excellence about their journey and explore the power of recovery together. Today, I have the honor of speaking with Sharon Heseltine. In addition to chairing our peer-led steering committee, Sharon is the president and CEO of Intentional Development Consulting and Training, an organization focused on promoting recovery from addiction. Sharon is passionate about reducing stigma associated with addiction and developing the capacity of communities, organizations, and individuals to better meet the needs of individuals with substance use disorders. Without further ado, let's get talking. Welcome, Sharon. Would you mind starting by explaining your role with the Center of Excellence? So I have the great honor of being able to chair the steering committee for the Peer Recovery Center of Excellence. And I have a lot of days where I still pinch myself about being able to be in this role and be involved in um, in this project because I think it represents more than just any training and technical assistance center. I think they're all incredibly valuable um, and have been around for a long time, and, and it is a really solid approach that the federal government takes in building capacity nationally, right, across all the various federal programs. But this is the first time that this investment has been made specific to peer support and the the work that peers do to support recovery. Um, and so that says a lot. That says a lot. And I hope what it, part of what it says is that this is a turning point and our overall support of the work that peers do in the way that from the public system and the way that we support recovery. I think you're absolutely right. And you make a really good point. And to my next question was, why is this work important to you? So, well, this work is important to me because I have had um, the most amazing gift of being able to start my life over at the age of 45, um, which is when I first came into recovery. And um, this is, I oftentimes I will call it, I do a lot of training of peers in where I live in Kentucky. Sure. And I will oftentimes call recovery the great do-over. Not everybody gets an opportunity to just start again um, right. when they're older like that. I like to think maybe I had some wisdom, maybe a little bit further into that journey. But um, this means a lot to me because I've had this amazing gift. And I know that recovery is possible. It is possible for everybody 
who struggles with a substance use disorder. And so when we have the right kinds of support at the right time, folks have a much greater opportunity to find recovery themselves and, and find a recovery that's meaningful for them. And that's why this work matters. Yeah, I I think that's huge. And, you know, just to go back to your last response, just I even pinch myself sometimes too that I get to do this work. I feel like I'm in a role where I'm helping the helpers. Um, but it's but yeah, you're right. It's just such incredible work to be a part of and such a good blend of head and heart for me. So digging a little deeper, do you want to talk a little bit about what recovery means to you? Yeah, I can talk about what it means um, to me, what it's meant for me. I believe that we one of the things we each each of us get to do is we get to define what recovery is for us. So in talking about what it is for me, that doesn't mean that I am extending that to what I think it is for everybody, because it really needs to be determined by the individual. But um, for me, I've, um, when I went, to, I went to treatment in 2004, and I went to a treatment program that was um, 12-step based program. It was in 2004, it was an abstinence-based program. They're okay. um, a little bit more flexible now. So for me, my own recovery is um, about a variety of things. I mean, part of it is about not misusing substances um, at all, but it's defined by a lot more than that because that's just what I need to do to be able to do the other things that matter in my life. So the way that I, I look at life, the way that I that faith plays a role in my life, all of those things are different for me since being in recovery. The way that I conduct myself, the standards that I hold myself to, um, my level of honesty with other people, um, all of those things are different than they used to be for me, different than they ever were in my life preceding being in recovery. So when I think about the principles that I live my life by of um, honesty, of service, of doing the next right thing, um, showing, right, showing up, um, paying attention to what is going on around me and being able to bring my best self, which doesn't look exactly the same day to day, uh, <laughs> whatever it is that I'm doing, um, all of those things are part of what defines recovery um, for me. And I'm by no means perfect at any of it, but I try my best each day. <laughs> I, I love that. And listening to everyone's story about recovery, it just sounds, I love how individualized it is, but how so many of the main concepts, like you talked about showing up and being honest, I mean, that can apply to anyone regardless of a struggle with substance use disorder. I think. And I th I think that's so much why recovery speaks volumes to just humans mm -hmm. and humanity. So in some of my internet sleuthing before I scheduled this with you, I heard that your recovery story began with a plane ride that changed your life. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? You've been on my website. <laughs> I think that's where that is. Yeah. That, I mean, I can talk about that plane ride, but it, I think it really all started right before that. Sure. Um, that particular plane trip was a flight from uh, Chicago O'Hare to Minneapolis-St. Paul. I went to treatment in Minnesota, and um, 
I, my sister put me on that plane <laughs> on uh, February 3rd of 2004, and I, I had a seat in the back row, and I leaned my head against the window, and I fell asleep um, probably for the first time in like a year, I think. And wow. the next thing I remember was just hearing them say, you know, get, you know, prepare for landing in Minneapolis, St. Paul. And um, from the treatment center that I went, that I went to, um, was there like with a little sign at the gate. They like picked you up at the gate. Even in 2004, <laughs> they were able to go to the gate to pick you up. And there was actually someone else on that plane um, who was going to the same place that I was going to. <laughs> but it, you know, before that, I had... Um, as far as um, my own experience in history with substance use disorder, I began using substances. I think the first time I remember using substances was at the age of 13. I was in eighth grade and it was with um, one of my neighbors and her parents. This is just right, my 13-year-old memory, but her parents were sure. alcoholics. We stole some beer from them. And we drank the beer. And there were a few other times I probably drank alcohol. But when I was um, 15, I started using substances daily. I mean, it, from, the, from that point in time. So for, from the age of 15 to the age of 45, um, with the exception of the time that I was pregnant, I used substances every single day. And when I was 15 and I was first using marijuana and I first got high off of it, I very distinctly remember just thinking this is the best I've ever felt in my entire life. And I absolutely want to feel like this all the time. And that really was like what I was striving to do for the next 30 years. And things just keep rolling and they keep rolling and they get bigger and they get bigger. And probably maybe about 10 years or so before I went to treatment, I really found myself, um, just my substance use just increased and increased and increased. I think there were periods of increase before that, like in college mm -hmm. and um, in my 20s. And then in my early 30s, I had my daughter and things kind of slowed down for me, but slowing down for me was getting high every single day and getting drunk all of every weekend. And that was as slow as anything ever got prior to getting into recovery. But about 10 years ahead of that, things just really amped up. And for me, what I found was that um, the more I used substances, the more I really compromised what I believed about what made you a good person. And the more mm -hmm. I compromised what I believed about what was right to do and what was wrong to do. So the more often I was doing things that I thought were wrong, the more often that I conducted myself in ways that contradicted what I felt thought a good person did, um, the worse I felt about myself. And the worse I felt about myself, the more I used to not feel that. And the more I used the more I compromised my values. So it just became for mm -hmm. me like a snowball rolling down a hill and it just kept getting bigger and getting bigger um, and getting bigger. And I think by the end, um, I had no more values. I had no more conscience. I had no more sense of right and wrong um, and really couldn't even really recognize who I had become. And for me, what it ended up culminating in in the January of 2004 were a couple of... Um, attempts to end my life. I just didn't 
think I had anything to offer and I didn't believe it was possible to get out of the mess I had made of my life. I'd lost my job the previous November um, and I'd worked in that, worked for the same agency, um, worked in human services and um, in public health. I'd worked for the same health department for 19 years and they wow. probably should have let me go a few years before that. <laughs> um, but I had done a lot of really good work for the uh, for quite a while there. And um, they really kept trying to work with me and to work with me and to, to kind of help me. And I think it becomes a point in time where um, it's really clear that, that, that's, that you have to do something. And so they let me go. They laid me off instead of firing me in uh, November of 2003, which I think is probably the best thing anybody had ever done for me. It was really um, a benefit because mm-hmm. from that point to when I went to treatment wasn't really very long. And it, la- it allowed everything to completely fall apart. Um, it also took away probably the one thing that I had used to be able to say, I don't have a problem because look at the job mm-hmm. I have and look at, you know, I show up to work every day and I, you know, I'm still employed and I still make my car payments and my this and my that. And Mm -hmm. so I could go down this checklist of things and convince myself that I didn't have a problem, even though a lot of other things were really falling apart. And, um, you know, I can't ever really explain what exactly happened that allowed me to like put me in a spot where I decided that maybe I should go to treatment because I really did literally go from not caring if I lived or died mm-hmm. um, and seeing death as the only way out to, I know it, you know, in all honesty, Shannon, it was something bigger than me. I, it had to have been something bigger than me because the way everything happened, I can't explain it any other way. But I had on a Friday, it occurred to me that maybe I could go to treatment and get my life back. The next day, I get a phone call from about from another town. And at that time, I wasn't really like answering my phone. And I didn't answer it when I got that call. I was um, at that by that point in time, my use had progressed to um, intravenous cocaine. So mm-hmm. the, the whole year of 2003 was crack cocaine. And that year was intravenous. That end of that was intravenous cocaine. And um, when the phone call came through, I said, well, I think when I come down enough to talk, I'm going to call that number back. And I, and I called the number back. And it really wasn't a time that I was really calling numbers back unless it was like the dope man. And sure. um, I called the number back and it was a hotel about 20 minutes away. And they, what they told me was that we, can, um, we, don't, we can't tell you who called you, but we can connect you to the room that called you. And I'm like, okay. And when they connected me to that room, my dad picked up the phone. My family lived about 350 miles away in Chicago. And so my dad talks to me, and he, he said all the things that if you ever watch that show Intervention that they say in Intervention, <laughs> but they told me about how much they, they cared about me and that I needed help and that they were here to help me. And then he put my mother on the phone. What my mom said to me made it truly okay, I think, to ask for help because what she said mm-hmm. to me, and she'd had cancer a number of years before this, probably 15 years before this happened. And she said, you know, when I had cancer, you came and you really helped me and you helped take care of me when I was sick. And now you're sick and we're here to help take care of you. Um, and she made it okay to ask for help. My sister was there with them and she'd come from California. And... Um, I talked to her and I got myself cleaned up 
and went over to the hotel, um, the shame and the guilt that I felt, I wasn't even sure I could face my parents. I knew I could face uh-huh. my sister, but I didn't know if I could face my parents. So I, you know, literally I took, <laughs> I took a Valium or Xanax or something like that to kind of help me settle down um, so that I could bring myself to face them. But what I learned from them was that they were going to come the weekend before, but there was an ice storm and they couldn't get there. Mm-hmm. And the weekend before, um, I was in no way thinking of doing anything about anything other than using until I couldn't figure out how to use anymore and then ending my mm-hmm. life. And so they, this all happens like 24 hours after I think about going to treatment. At the time that it happened, I did have, I mean, I had this understanding that like this, when they told me about the ice storm and that they were going to come the weekend before and I really thought about it, I was just like, I knew there was something bigger than me involved in this. There just, there had to be um, right. how that all came together. So, I mean, that was a Saturday, Sunday, we're calling treatment centers um, all over the place. And there was one in Minnesota um, that um, when I did the whole intake over the phone, it was probably the first time I'd ever been honest with anyone about my substance use. And um, they said, we have a bad one. Can you get here? That I'd also called one in Arizona. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is like February. I really hate cold weather, but they didn't have a bed <laughs> till February 11th. And so what I told my parents is I said, I want to go to Minnesota because they have a bed now. And I was scared if I waited that I wouldn't make it um, that far. Um, I just... There's sometimes we have a knowing in our head and sometimes we have a knowing in our soul. And -hmm. it was a knowing in my soul that told me if I didn't do something, I was going to die. And um, that got me to treatment. But what I'll always say is what that's not what keeps me in recovery. Right. The the fear of the fear and the chaos and the unmanageability and all the things that are about a life in active addiction, I don't believe are enough um, to keep you in recovery. The life you get to build in recovery mm-hmm. keeps you in recovery. So what keeps me in recovery is um, how I get to feel about myself, the peace I have internally, the relationships that I have with with my family, um, with my daughter, with my with my spouse, and the way that I get to to show up and be a part of things that make a difference um, and be mm-hmm. a meaningful part of things that make a difference. That's what keeps me in recovery. So right, building a life that you wouldn't want to lose, no matter how bad a day is or how I feel or how uncomfortable I get on a given day, this life that I get to live today is not worth risking um, just to make things that are super uncomfortable go away. And I also have the faith that even on the days that feel really awful, and I think this disease loves to tell me, you know, it's, it's going to be awful every day, right? This last year's not right. been easy. There's been periods of this last year, you know, for, for all of us that have been um, incredibly difficult. And this winter was really hard in a lot of ways because mm-hmm. winter's hard for me anyway, because the days are shorter, there's, it's cold, there's not enough light and um, right, all those other kinds of things that, that happened. And it, this year particularly was really difficult. I am a total extrovert. So I have <laughs> been, I feel like alone in my house um, for over a year, seeing mainly just my husband and people in Zoom. But I also have a great um, opportunity to get to work from home. So that's pretty, pretty good. But no matter how things feel on a given day or a given bunch of days, um, it's not worth risking. 
for me. It's not worth risking. And so when I look at peers and I look at the center of excellence, what peers get to do is help folks rebuild a life. Bill White has a term, he calls it lifestyle reconstruction. Peers help folks reconstruct a life in recovery that they wouldn't want to risk losing by picking up substances. And recovery is about so much more than not using. Not using is just the vehicle to get all the other gifts um, that recovery has for folks. And at the beginning, there's no way for a person to really see how amazing it's going to be. So I was around some moms who were in really early recovery for some work that we were doing back in January. And as I was listening to them to talk about recovery, part of what I kept thinking was, wow, like y'all, and they were excited and they were so happy where their life was and they were looking forward to things. And I just remember, you know, listening to them and thinking, you all have no idea like how amazing this is going to be if you just keep showing up and, and um, doing the things that you're, they're learning about doing. I, again, I just keep going back. I think that's such a, a staple for everyone's lives, right? That no matter what they struggle with, you know, whether it's a mental health disorder or a substance use disorder or any sort of chronic condition, I, I think what helps maintain us in this life is that, you know, cultivation of, of values and things that we love and keep us secure. And I think your life is such a testament to that. You, you kind of talked about this at the top of the recording, um, the great do-over, and I love that phraseology. Um, do you want to talk a little bit more about that and what it means to you and your story and how maybe other people can use it? I think part of what I, you know, is this a, that's such a good question, and I haven't really thought about it so much in that way, but as I reflect on it, I think a piece of it is about, right, the ability to let go Mm. of the past. And it's not, there's a, there's a phrase that, um, in 12 step recovery that, um, about not regretting the past. And I don't, because I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for the past. But at the same time, there's things that, um, I have to be able to let go of for my own, um, health and my own inner well being. Um, and for me, those things probably all center around being um, a very different kind of parent than the parent that I wanted to be. And I think mm -hmm. this is really common. And for parents, I can't speak for fathers because I've not been one. But I can speak <laughs> sure. for mothers. And that's my area of greatest passion for a variety of reasons. But um, being able to let go of the shame of mm -hmm. who I was and the shame really is about who you were and guilt is about what you've, what you've done. And so letting go of the shame, I think it's connected to this idea that it's a great do-over. Like I can let go of who I was. Um, there's certain things I think in the things that I did and that are hard to let go of guilt wise. And I'm actually have a lot of peace around that. And those things for me are all in all related to, um, to parenting because my daughter really deserved so much more and she deserves so much better. Um, although what she continues to tell me is that's part of what made her who she is today. And she pretty well likes who she is today. <laughs> and um, that she's like, you just need to let it go. But um, <laughs> she's a lot wiser sometimes than I am. So I think, but that's why I think about it as the, you know, the great do-over. I mean, I really did start mm -hmm. over and 
in a lot of ways. I mean, but I brought a lot with me and a lot of good things with me. I managed to, I'm not exactly sure how, um, <laughs> but kind of hold on to a lot of recovery capital, um, mm-hmm. even through um, some really significant um, addiction. You know, do a lot of work training peer support where I live in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And part of what we are really helping them um to do is build skills around recovery planning. So when I talk about helping other people who are coming into recovery reconstruct their lives, that's what recovery planning is all about and helping folks grow their recovery capital so that it really strengthens and solidifies their their own recovery. I managed to hold on to quite a bit of that and even through gained more of it while I was in treatment and I was in treatment for just about six months and then from there, I went to recovery housing for six months. And through all that process, I, my recovery capital kept growing. Of course, I had no idea because I didn't know what recovery capital was. But now I've, I've looked back on that. Um, and I see that that got to continue to grow. And the rest of it is really, I mean, seriously, the rest of it's just been kind of continuing to show, to show up. Um, and pay attention to the things that are happening in my life because what happens in my life gives me a lot of information about what direction I should be going in, right? So things happen and, and be chairing the steering committee is probably a, a good example of that. When I was asked to do that, my first thought was like, am I hearing this correctly? <laughs> we have for the center this, I mean, an amazing steering committee of some really accomplished folks I suffer from imposter syndrome um, <laughs> in a significant way sometimes, and this was definitely one of them, except that it happened out of the blue. So the other thing that I've learned is that when things like that happen out of the blue, it doesn't matter that I don't, maybe I don't think I'm quite ready or that I'm a little bit intimidated. I, I also know I'm supposed to do it. Mm. And this is a perfect example of it. This is something that I I know when... Um, when Pat Stylin called me, I was like, I thought, I evidently am supposed to do this. <laughs> and, um, and it really doesn't matter that it feels pretty scary. And I'm not so sure that I'm ready. And there's a lot of really, really well accomplished people or not. a lot. There's not a lot of people total on the steering committee, but they are all very accomplished. And things like, you know, things of that nature have happened right all along mm-hmm. um, at, at differing times. Yeah, I really like that idea of you take with, well, if an opportunity comes out of the, bl- out of the blue, I'm going to go and do it. <laughs> it's a risk worth taking. It is um, a risk worth taking because that, yeah. I feel that's part of the message in it, mm-hmm. right? That it's to not let fear of being inadequate or your own insecurity be the barrier to moving forward and trying, you know, and stepping up to the things that come in your path. That's also something I think I've really learned in recovery in a way that I never fully appreciated it Mm. in the past. That's a good point. Sharon, do you want to talk a little bit about your passion for women and family building? Yes, I do. Thank you for asking about that. It's my favorite thing. I have worked in programs. I'm a social worker, so I went to college and got a degree in social work in 1981 was when I graduated. And I ended up, and I went back to school a few years later um, in nursing, and I ended up working in public health in a program for pregnant and parenting 
adolescence. And so about two and a half years after that, I was the ended up running that program and had the opportunity to be the director of social services in the seven county health department. So I have always had this interest in young children mm-hmm. and in families. And I have also always wanted to be involved in work that um, in my mind, that would level the playing field. So I think from a really young age, recognized that I had would have opportunities in my life that not, that other kids wouldn't have. I mean, it's probably eight. Like I can remember where I was when I started thinking about this and what grade in school I was in. And I know I was in third grade, so I would have been about eight years old. <laughs> and I knew that that wasn't fair and that that wasn't right. And I think that mm-hmm. part of the seeds of what led me to end up being a social worker were planted at that time. I remember my parents taking us to different neighborhoods in Chicago and helping us to see that not everybody lived the way that we lived and that um, how fortunate that we were. They did. They wanted, it was important to them that um, myself and my brother and my sister recognized how if how fortunate we were and that not everybody is as fortunate as us. So I know that's, I mean, that's where I think a lot of that came from. And it was the 60s. So there was a lot going on. And <laughs> there was a lot happening in the 60s. And <laughs> sure, yeah. I got to watch the news a lot more than a lot of <laughs> other people I, my age, because I think all of those things influenced me. So I working in public health and I'm working in family support programs that are serving pregnant and parenting adolescents and pregnant and parenting families in poverty. The agency I worked for the last 10 years that I was there, we were the Head Start grantee. So I had the gift of working mm. in Head Start um, and being a part of, of, of that program and managing all of our social services and community partnerships. So programs for families with young children has is, is been where I have worked all of my career when I was um ended up in Minnesota. I ended up staying in Minnesota. I went, you know, as I said earlier, I went to treatment there, but then I stayed Mm -hmm. there. And about three years into recovery, I ended up getting a job for the state health department in Minnesota, um, only to find out that they had home visiting in all over the state. And six weeks after I got the first job there, a job in home visiting opened up and I ended up right back in home visiting programs, which is where I had been in Southern Illinois, which also offered me an answer as to how I was able to be so functional in my job as long as I was with such an active addiction. And I think that was just because I was working where my higher power intended me to be. I think I was doing what I was meant to be doing all the way along. So I wanted to, as I'm working in recovery in home visiting, part of what I became right, acutely aware of is stigma and mm, bias mm-hmm. and how that really impacts services that folks who struggle with addiction and who are in early recovery receive. And I had an amazing uh, boss who let me do some things related to substance use disorder, who allowed me to develop training um, that mm-hmm. went, went statewide in Minnesota for our public health nurses around addiction and recovery. Mm-hmm. And when I ended up moving to Kentucky, I started um, a business for a variety of reasons. One is that there just wasn't anything job-wise available that really fit well for me. So I thought, well, I'll try my own business for six months and see what <laughs> happens with see what happens here if this yeah. if this can work. 
Um, my goal was, though, I really believed that what I would end up doing and what I really wanted to do was influence how family support programs like Head Start, like home visiting, all of those types of programs, I wanted to have an impact on, on how folks who worked in those programs were able to show up for families with substance use disorder and families in early recovery. So in my mind, I, that's where I thought I was going to have my imp impact. But what ended up happening was actually the opposite. And I got to work a lot more in the addiction space and have mm -hmm. an impact on how um, a lot of our a number of programs in Kentucky, particularly um, how we support parent-child relationships. Um, I ended up with the opportunity to develop training and work with peer support in Kentucky and was able to bring in what I had learned about relationship-based work where we really utilize and, and, and leverage relationships with folks as a catalyst for change. And that's a part of what peers do um, and how I was able, I've been able to take a lot of what I've learned in family support programs, bring them into addiction and treatment for pregnant and parenting families, as well as the work that peers do. So it's just a great example how something bigger than me had a different intention for me. I've had the opportunity to develop training for peers who work with pregnant and parenting families. Um, and that's something that I've got to work on over the last year or so. So and we're getting ready with that to be able to do a train the trainer so that we can really build capacity and make a difference and really make a difference about how we support pregnant and parenting families and how we support the parent-child relationship. I could get into all oh, way too much <laughs> science and stuff around that. And I'll just tell people they should come to the training and they can hear <laughs> amazing things about supporting families. Yeah, I, I love that so much about your story that, I mean, your passion and your drive through active addiction, through recovery into now, it's always been there and it's always been a part of you and something you've been striving for, no matter the circumstance around it, right? It's always yeah, been I, there. I think for pregnant women with substance use disorder too, it comes, uh, part of that comes from, I mean, it's always been there. And then there's this whole added piece of, I know what it feels like to be a parent who's really far removed from the parent I wanted to be able to be. Mm. And I know what it's like to then be a parent who is well beyond what I imagined I would be in recovery and grandparent because I hadn't mentioned my grandchildren and they're oh, pretty yeah. amazing. And Very uh, important. yeah, yeah. And so I want other parents to get that same experience. You know, when I have the opportunity to really listen to women who are, are either they're struggling with recovery, they're still in active addiction, or they're in very early recovery, and how they feel about themselves as parents. I know what that I know what that's like because I felt the exact same way, and I know how painful and just incredibly, mm -hmm. incredibly painful that that is. But I also know that they have the ability to be so much more than they ever imagined themselves. Um, in this journey in recovery. And so I want to see that happen um, for them and for their children. Because I also think for most of us who were parents when we had kids and were parents during active addiction, one of the most important things is that our children don't mm -hmm. go through what we went through. And so we want to be able to do everything we can to prevent that from happening. Sure. I love that. Well, for our listeners, if there's only one thing that they could walk away with from our conversation, what would you want them to learn or have? I don't do well with like the one thing. Oh, the one thing? Piece you can make ever, it a list. 
It's always a list and it's always a bunch of things. But, you know, for the Center of Excellence, when we had that town hall last Friday mm-hmm. and there's over 400 people in a Zoom from one end of this country to the other, that was one of the most powerful experiences I've had in a while. And what it helps me realize is that collectively we are all of us who are working in this space of recovery support services and at any capacity, whether we're, we're peers, whether we're trainers, whether we're program managers, whatever it is that we're doing in this space, collectively, we are really powerful. I mean, we are mm-hmm. having a collective impact that is significant. And together, we get to be like the snowball rolling down the hill, right? Because together... <laughs> We really can, I think our collective wisdom, our collective strength, our collective experiences and our, and our collective right, contribution for all of this can just keep growing the possibility of recovery um, for more people. There's an awful lot, you know, I think that we can make a difference around stigma. That's I've been working on a presentation all day today that's related to stigma. So it's been at the forefront of my mind and um, it's such a huge barrier to folks getting help and changing their life. Well, Sharon, I want to give you some time to transition to your next thing. (laughs) Thank you so much for, I hate to call you a guinea pig, but thank you for being my first guest. I really appreciate it. (laughs) Oh, you're welcome. I'll just, you know, I set the bar. (laughs) Absolutely. And thank you so much for sharing your story. I think it's such a huge privilege to hear one another's stories. And I think it's so important in this life. So thank you so much for being open and willing. It's my pleasure. Thank you for connecting with us, listeners. Our goal in sharing stories and information is to provide hope and resources to the field of peer recovery. Please join us again next month on Recovery Talk. You can find our episodes on our website, peerrecoverynow.org. That's peerrecoverynow.org. Or wherever you find your podcasts.